0: I did, because my garage is too messy to get the car in it right now. So I had to get the scraper. Now, I'm thankful that it wasn't ice, amen? And I didn't have to use the shovel for snow, but, uh, but frost, frost. You know, here in Michigan, we deal with it all the time. We scrape frost off the windshield. Just as, it's just as much a Michigan thing as Coney Island's or, or the Lions. I was really hoping to come up here today and say it, and the Lions winning, but frost is still a Michigan thing. Uh, About six or seven weeks ago, I really got into frost and why frost is frost and what makes frost frost and why we have frost. Why can't we have tropical weather in Detroit, you know, with a palm tree around every now and again. Frost is really kind of fascinating. For frost to happen, several things have to be present. First of all, let me give you a science 101 definition of frost. Frost. Frost is the solid disposition of water vapor that's just kind of saturated in the air. So you got to have the water and vapor form that's, that's in the air. And it's formed when the solid surfaces are cooled below the dew point of the adjacent air as well as below the freezing point of water. How's that for Science 101, huh? I'm like uh, Mike Nye the science guy, you know? But here's here's kind of what it means. It says for frost to happen, there's got to be a certain amount of moisture in the air. That's that first picture. It's got to be below dew point. That means you have humidity. And ladies, you know what humidity does to your hair, right? It gives you a bad hair day. And then when it condenses at the dew point, the dew point is when the temperature, uh, which is given to the human air, is cooled at a constant barometric pressure. And then the water vapor condenses, and when it condenses and falls on something warmer than the water, you get dew. When it falls on something, a surface that's colder than the vapor, you get frost. So really you kind of need like three elements. You need a, a surface area, either warm or chilly. You need water vapor, and you need this dew point where, where everything just kind of stays the same and it has time to crystallize and go from a, a vapor to a solid. Here's what I know. There's a lot of Christians who stay at the dew point. They don't go up and they don't go down. They don't grow in their faith and they don't regress in their faith. They're just at the dew point. There's enough moisture in the air. They they come to church enough to look good, kind of get a little warm, fuzzy every once in a while when we worship our Lord and Savior. And Don is up here or Mike Garcia or whoever's up here leading us in in, in worship and and it just kind of feels good. But there's no really substantive change in our life because we're just kind of at that dew point. And then when the Spirit does move, when, when God just kind of crystallizes things and show us things and reveals himself to us in a worship church setting, is the surface of your soul chilly? I'm not talking cold. I'm not talking ice. I'm not, I'm not talking that you're involved in gross sin or, or just way out there. I'm just saying is the surface temperature of your soul chilly? So that even when the spirit of God moves, it's just like this thin, minute layer of ice crystals that just kind of keeps you from enjoying the best that God has for you. Turn to the book of Colossians chapter 4. I don't know if Paul ever thought about frost... But I do know that he talked about trying to help Christians live a life that didn't live at the level of the dew point and to keep our souls from being chilled or cold towards the things of God. Turn to the book of Colossians chapter 4. This letter was written and it is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at a city called Colossae. Colossae, Paul had never visited to. It was, a, it was an important city in the Roman Empire at that time. And at this city, in this city, there was a guide by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras probably went about 6, 8, 12 miles over to Ephesus when Paul ministered there for three years on a missionary journey. As he ministered there, he preached. Epaphras heard the message of the gospel, was so just convicted of the truth of the life of Jesus Christ that he went back to his hometown Colossae and he started a church isn't that cool that that here's this guy he just heard the gospel responded to it went back home and started a church I said dude didn't he go to Bible college no did he go to grad school no he just had the power of God and a and a burden and a love for people and he went and so Paul is writing to on behalf of his friend Epaphras probably to churches but certainly a church there in the area and it was a, it was a letter where Paul is trying to help the Christians there grow in their faith Every letter that Paul writes has two components to it it has theology and then it has application Paul would not just simply say, here's truth of sanctification, justification, soteriology, atonement, so on and so forth. He would say, okay, here's what it is. Here's how you live it out. Paul was intimately concerned about how Christians live out their faith. Because if all we have is theology, if all we have is doctrine, and I am all about theology, and I'm all about doctrine, I love it, apologetics and the whole deal, man. I get into that kind of thing. That is, I love it. But if that's all you get and don't know how to apply it. And so, so Paul took two chapters in the, in the letter to the Colossians. And he said, okay, here's the doctrine. And here's what he said. He said the main theme of this letter is that Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation. Including what you can see and including what you cannot see. And Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone, has secured salvation for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, burial, resurrection, translation, God wants you to have a full and enriched life because of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul would hammer this point of fullness home over and over. And the, and the Colossians knew what it meant when he would use the words fullness in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the theological part. The word fullness there talks about a big ship. Loaded down with merchandise and cargo and rowers and sailors and cooks and soldiers and crew. And it was just loaded down to the, all the tonnage you could get on the boat. It was weighted down to set sail. Well, Paul tweaked that turn, And he said that Christians in Christ, Christ's purpose is that we max out our Christian life. That we max out our Christian faith. That we enjoy Christ in all of its fullness. And I mean and just so that our spiritual boat is weighted down with the good things and the blessings and the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. He talks about this thing of fullness. I would imagine if we would go through our manifest on our ship. On our spiritual ship. I would think a lot of us would look around and go, man, this boat's about half full. I got a lot more space. So Paul talks about this idea of fullness in Christ. Not just staying at a dew point, not just staying at a constant, but going on to the fullness of Jesus Christ so our souls don't get chilled to the, to the gospel message, but that we stay warm and, and on fire for him. But Paul knew that sometimes our souls would become cool and chilled as Christians, and doesn't it? You might as well, amen, I know yours does. Hey, you want to know what? Mine does too. Just like you, I have to work and work hard to keep my relationship growing in the fullness of Christ. I have to work hard so that the surface temperature of my soul doesn't fall below the dew point, doesn't fall below the the place of of the moving of God in in my heart, in my life, and in our church. And so Paul was simply saying here, hey, listen, I know that sometimes your souls are going to chill, and I know sometimes you're going to cool, sometimes you're going to be on fire for the Lord, other times you're going to cool off. And he knew that believers would get frost in the soul. So he gave some great theology in chapter 1 and chapter 2. By the way, if you want to read one of the clearest, most eloquent definitions and explanations of who Jesus Christ is, you read Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Absolutely incredible. Then you come to chapter 3 and he starts to make application. Then you come to chapter 4 and verse 2. First part, here's what he says. Devote yourself to prayer. That's it. Devote yourself to prayer. Would you say that with me? Devote yourself to prayer. Now, in our English, that translates into four words. In the Greek, it was simply two words. The word prayer, we kind of all know, and the word prayer is prosuhe. Prosuhe. Prosuhe simply means an address or a conversation made to God. Prayer is simply a personal conversation with a personal God. It is an address or conversation made to God. But it goes beyond that. It means a place set apart or suited for an offering of prayer. And not only talked about what it was, but really it talked about where it was to happen. That, that prayer happens to God. It's a conversation, but it's also a, a place set apart. The tradition, the heritage of our church and, and of our people is that we have an altar call. An altar call is a place set apart, suited for an offering of prayer. That's why when we say, if you need to come and talk to the Lord, the altar is always open because this altar is a place set apart, suited for an offering of prayer, so that your heart doesn't stay below the dew point, so the surface temperature of your soul doesn't stay chilled to the things that God wants to do in your life. So he says, devote yourself to prayer. And we all struggle with this area of praying, don't we? You might as well, amen, we do. We all struggle. How much time do you pray? When do we pray? Good night. I don't have time to pray because I'm too busy to pray. I mean, we all have that. We try to get consistent in our prayer life, and then we just kind of bail out of our prayer life, and we're just kind of up and down in this thing, and then it seems like when we really pray is when tragedy comes in our lives. And then we have these big events and this drama in our life, and then we go to God in prayer. I often wondered if we had a consistent life of prayer. Would those things happen with such frequency? I don't know. In in book of Exodus, chapter 33, verses 7 and 9, don't turn there, you have this first kind of concept of a place of prayer. Moses was on the mountain, the Israelites were on the valley, and they hadn't heard from God, and they hadn't heard from Moses, their leader. So what did they do? They made a golden calf, and it is an incredible story. It's so fun just to read that part of the Scriptures. And so Moses came down, burnt and melted the golden calf, made the people who made it and worshipped it drink it, that sounds like something out of a James Bond flick, doesn't it? And then because there was no place for them to meet. Outside the city they made this tent of meetings where anyone could go. And it's a beautiful verse in the book of Exodus chapter 33. An inquire of the Lord. It was a place set apart, suited for an offering of prayer. Say, I'm convinced that everybody needs a place that when you go there, that's where you pray. It might be a closet, the New Testament talks about that. It might be a chair that, that you go to before everybody gets up and the house starts, you know, getting noisy as the day gets going. But I think everybody needs that place set apart, suited for an offering of prayer. Is simply a personal conversation with a personal God. And that word prayer is really cool. That's the second word, the Greek word. The first word is really the important word because it's a descriptive word. It, it describes how we're to pray. It, it, it describes the manner of the prayer. We have the, pra- the place of prayer, but then it kind of describes how we're to do this thing. The first word, and, and it's a strong word, is pros kerte reo. And I gotta slow it down a little bit so I get it all in there, you know what I mean? Proscar Te Reo. It, 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 it's a strong word. It's written in the present active imperative. Now, I didn't like English in high school, and I don't like it much now, but I want you to understand what the present active imperative means. If an imperative mood is not an expression of reality. But it is an expression of a command or request that opens up possibilities. It's kind of like, if you do this, then this will happen. Now, that's not the best description of it, but, but kind of going from the Greek to the English and the imperative mood, That it, it, it's, an imperative mood is kind of a request or a command. And, and in the Greek, it, it has the idea of possibilities or options. And so it's the idea that if you pray... And all of a sudden, you know what God's doing. You know what God's all about. Prayer isn't so much about our list, our wants, our desires. Prayer then becomes a conversation where we try to figure out what's going on in, in God's mind, and God's heart, and what God's doing. And then we get in on what God's doing. Isn't that cool? The word, pra- the word prayer is proscarte reo. It means to associate closely with, to serve personally, to be devoted to, to give relentless care to a thing. Wow. To give relentless care to a thing. It has the idea of persistent prayer. Colossians 4, 2 was saying to us, give relentless care to prayer relentless care to prayer. Now, for most of us, our prayers are kind of one and done, aren't they? Right? We pray one time, and if God doesn't move when we pray, as we're prayed, and the phone doesn't ring 30 seconds after we say amen, it's just like, whoop, it's off our radar screen, and we're on to something else. Wouldn't you say that most of us pray kind of the one and done instead of having this relentless care for prayer, this relentless attitude of persistence where we always come before the Lord, not begging, not pleading, but simply coming to find out what God is doing, to be a part of what God is doing, and to ask God to, to, to do things and, uh, and, and to bless and, and to move. By the way, in contrast to the one and done, you find this great story Jesus gave in Luke 18. Read the story on the screen as I just kind of tell it to you. Jesus told his disciples this story, that's a parable, about how they should always pray and never give up on praying. Now, the, the, the tension in the life of Jesus Christ was mounting at this time, and persecution was starting for Christians was starting to, to be felt just a little bit, and, and Rome was putting pressure and it was all kinds of social economic things going on. And Jesus was saying, Hey, listen, when you pray, don't give up. And he said, In a certain town, there was this poor woman, there's this poor widow. And she had a high sense of justice. And she would go to the judge. Who didn't fear God and didn't care about people. He was in it for the money. I know we don't know any politicians like that today. And he was in it for the money. And the widow came and she kept coming to him with a plea. By the way, that phrase in verse 3, who kept coming, that means he kept coming and 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 and coming and coming, saying one, saying, grant me justice against my adversary. You see, in this day, if you wanted the wheels of justice to run smoothly, you had to oil it with a bribe. She was too poor to get a bribe. The only thing she had was time, and so she kept coming over and over and over and over and over and over and over pestering the mess out of this cruel judge look at how the story ends in verse 5 it says for some time he refused but finally said to himself even though i don't care about god and i don't care about her she is wearing me out by her coming basically she's saying this old widow woman is being none but a stinking nag and i want to get rid of her that's the tremble translation of the bible And so what did he do? He answered her request. Now, I I do want to caution you right here. Before you start thinking that God needs to be pestered, argued with, and bribed in order to have our prayers answered, it's important to understand that this parable is contrasting the unjust judge with Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who will answer, who is eager to answer the prayers for his children. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, it says, he will grant justice to them. The unjust judge responded to her persistence. To be devoted in prayer means you have to give relentless care to prayer. Be persistent. Don't be the one and done. Have you ever heard about the little boy? Who uh when dad sent him up to bed, his mom was out with a meeting or something, and so he had the children had the family devotions, did the whole routine. The children were up in their beds, and the youngest one hollered down from upstairs, Daddy, I'm Thursday. Would you bring me a drink of water? The dad was reading, he had the remote control, he had his feet propped up on the couch, his checklist was done. Daddy. Can I have a drink of water? Nothing. Daddy, can I have a drink of water? So finally the dad, you know, slaps down the book and goes upstairs, gives the boy a drink of water. The little boy goes back, you know, turns over, goes back to sleep. You know what happens? 5 minutes later, Daddy, I got to go to the bathroom. Get up, go to the bathroom. Can you help me? No. Daddy, can I get a drink of water before I go back to bed in the bathroom? Sure. He said that before he thought. Is that a rabbit to use? Psycho repeated over a couple of times. Then finally he heard a little pitter patter of little feet. And he said, son, you stay in that bed. Don't you say another word. If you do, I'm going to come up there and I'm going to spank your hiney. Which you can imagine, it got real quiet. Finally, the little boy spoke up and said, Daddy, when you come up to spank my hiney, would you bring me a glass of water? (laughs) Persistence persistence the judge did not care about the woman jesus christ cares about you persistence the judge didn't want to answer her request jesus eagerly waits to answer your request persistence you say well persistence sounds like begging no persistence helps you understand helps you understand what's going on in the mind and the heart of god so you can be a part of what god is doing or Bill Heibel's had a little formula in his book, Too Busy to Pray. He writes this. He says, if the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. And if the request is right and the timing is right and you are right, God says go. That's pretty good. Give relentless care to prayer. By all means exercise faith that moves mountains but know that God is still the one who moves the mountains. Just keep pushing. Just when you pray push. Because there'll be times when you're so excited as you start to pray, and, and you'll be excited as you start to pray for this matter, or our church, or this issue, or your friend, or your family, or just kind of making a commitment that you're going to have a better prayer life in 2012 than you had in 2011, that you want to have a place where you meet with God, so you're going to keep praying. You're going to push. You're going to push. And Man, I applaud that, and I say, keep going. Push. When everything seems to go wrong, Push. When the jobs get down, when the job gets you down, push. When people don't react the way that you think they should, push. When, when your money is short and the bills are long, push. When you want to curse them out for whatever the reason, push. When people don't understand you, be relentless. Push. You know what push means? Push means pray until something happens. Don't quit pushing. Give relentless care to prayer so that the temperature, the surface temperature of your soul does not come cold and chilled to the things of God. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? Let's ask a question. Do we need to get, do we need to get the scraper out? Do we need to scrape up some frost from our souls? Do you need a, a prosuhe, not, not, and have a conversation with God at a place that's committed to prayer? See, a lot of us need to get <laughs> the scrapers out. And we need to clear that frost off the windshield. Matt, I wonder if you're here, would you just be honest with me? You say, Pastor Mike, man, in this area of my prayer life, man, I'm telling you, it's, it's tough. It's tough for me to say faithful to it. And, and I get cold to the things of God. And again, Paul was writing so we would know the fullness, so our boat would be loaded down with the power and the presence and the blessings of God. But yet, because you don't spend time with Him in prayer, and there's just... You've been staying at that same point and your soul just kind of got chilled to the things of God. I wonder, do we need to get out the, do we need to get out the, the scraper? And just kind of scrape off some spiritual frost. So you can't know Christ in all of his fullness if you don't spend with Him. You just can't. There's no way to do it. So why not in this very first Sunday morning or second Sunday morning of the new year as we've talked about prosue that prayer is this personal conversation with God but it's also a place where you meet with God. So I wonder how many of you this morning would say, Pastor, it's not a resolution it's just simply a commitment that I want 2012 to be a better year in my prayer life my decision my commitment to spend time with the Lord even if it's just 10 minutes a day I want 2012 to be better than 2011 in this area of prayer and I wonder if you would be like me and just raise your hand and say pastor that's me that's me Just a lot of us raising our hands. Just raise them quickly. A lot of us are. Now, maybe this morning, maybe this morning, and I wasn't planning on doing this right here, but maybe this morning you need to slip out and have a pros uhe. Come to a place where you can have a personal conversation. I know you can do it at your chair, but you, guys, you and I know what happens when we, when we pray at our chair. Sometimes we're easily distracted. And maybe at this place, if there's sins to confess, you can do that. Maybe in this place, if there's a relationship to restore, you can do that. And in this place, if your heart's been chilled to the things of God and you need it warm to His love and His care and the fullness of who He is... Maybe in this place. So would you stand to your feet? And I'm going to pray for all of us. And Don's going to sing a verse, of whatever. And in that first verse, man, matter of fact, you don't even have to wait for the verse if you just want to come and pray yourself, not listening to me, but pray yourself this morning to our Lord, to our Savior, to our King. Man, you come right now. As I lead us in prayer, Father, all of us, and many, many, many of us, raised our hands because we want to do better.